Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors. The 2020 Dacia sales event is now on at Blackstone Motors, Drogheda, Dundalk and Cavan. Call in to see how shockingly affordable a new Dacia is in the new year. You're very welcome to a brand new week of Late Lunch on LMFM Radio. We're jammed for the next couple of hours. I've just one question before I start. What happened with the switching on of the Christmas lights in Drogheda? What happened, folks? They didn't happen. It didn't happen on Friday evening, yet Frostville up the road in Dundalk happened and there was no issue. What went wrong? And then it was yesterday and the lights went on yesterday, but... I don't know whether it was that organised, to be honest with you. And I'm speaking as a Drahadi in myself, asking the question. If you can throw some light on the subject, do remember our numbers 086 658 by WhatsApp or text. So you can call in on 1850-715-958. Now, around this time last year, Terry McCoy decided to call it a day at the Red Bank in Skerries. The landmark restaurant first opened its doors in December 1983. And after 35 years, Terry retired... However, his culinary journey continues with the publication of this lovely book. I really love it, folks. It's called St. Patrick's Plate. And guess what? The man himself is with me on Late Lunch. Terry, you're welcome to the show. I feel very welcome. I love, you are. I love Drogheda. Do you? Ah, yes. I'm, I'm well used to it. I used to come up here and do a lot of shopping in West Street in Cairns. It's the wonderful delicatessen. They had a wonderful smoked loin of pork which I had to come and get all the time. So. And it was always I got the loads menu. of parking tickets here. <laughs> Did you pay them? <laughs> no, don't answer that. Just keep no. that to yourself for the moment. I'm delighted to have you with me because I have to admit, I was in the Red Bank on a number of occasions over the years. T- to say goodbye after all that time, was it tough? It was. But like when you get to 74 years of age, you're... you're limbs are all stiffening up and when I had to bend down to put something in the oven and get up one of my staff used to have to nearly come over and grab me by the waistband and pull me upright again so your body time tells you it's time to kind of slow down and I was very fortunate to get a really excellent young chef interested in it his name was Cahill Leonard from, from Rush and of course he was head chef in chapter one in Dublin Parnell Square so he's great pedigree and he's very dedicated. Now he's doing different food to me. I specialised in seafood. Uh, he has fish on the menu, but mainly he's gone in the direction of tasting menus. Have you been in? 
Oh, I have, yes, and the food is really mouth-watering. Well, if you I, say that, yeah. <laughs> that is a great recommendation. And of course, Carl is from Rush and Sarah Ryan, his partner, is involved with him yes, there as well. Yes. What about your son, Ross? He, he, he was working with you, was he? Or, or what was uh, the well, he was, but he saw how hard and how dedicated you had to be in the, uh, in the kitchen. And he really didn't want to do that. Get, get us closely involved. So we just decided the best thing to do is to lease it on because you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear and there's no point in putting somebody in jail into a prison they, they don't really want to be in. Well, that leads me nicely to you because it's known and a known fact that you gave that place everything. 80 hours a week wouldn't be uncommon when you were there. Well, look, it depends on how you look at work. I was doing something that I really enjoyed. So I didn't do a day's work in 35 years. I was at, I was paid to be at a party every night <laughs> of the week. So it was great. <laughs> so it's all the way you hold your mouth. Yeah. When you eventually made the decision, look, I'm handing on the baton and I'm moving on myself. Has it been difficult to adjust? Well, well, it has a bit. Yes, it has, to be honest with you. But as I said to you, the body is kind of slowing down at 74 years of age. So you're getting a bit stiff. So it's a bit, your enthusiasm kind of goes a little bit. And I went out kind of on a high, really. And that was important to kind of quit at the top rather than kind of let it all leech away. We used to go to Lansdowne Road as a schoolboy and we heard the people sing in those days old soldiers never die they only fade away when there was an injury on the pitch so all those kind of things led me look there's a time for everything Mm. and then there was an opportunity to do other things like write this book Well we're going to come on to the book in a moment but just before we finish with Red Bank and, and the landmark it was and will always be in many people's minds you, what you put into it, of course. You mentioned the speciality of the fish and the smoked pork from Cairns as well and other things. Was it the combination of everything that made it such a success? Well, I think what we did was we concentrated on what was there locally within 15 miles radius of the Red Bank and we really didn't buy anything in from a distance. So we could only go up to Rush for the vegetables and the flowery spuds and we go up to Drogheda for the pork. So not very far away. So we concentrated on everything that was local. And then the fish was landed in Skerries. So we didn't have many air miles on anything. And then we made the wonderful brown bread that I had. There was a stone ground mill up in Anagassan. And uh, we we got our mill, uh, our bread from there, our, our milled, so it all was local and it was very important to feature all the local items and it was a bit of a challenge getting them but we could get them and so it was a way of life really it was a way of life 35 years is a fantastic innings but today you see so many businesses especially in the game you've been in come and go well they've they, they, you see I was very fortunate in that the day one I purchased an old bank Allied Irish Bank wanted to, uh, they moved across the road from me and we had the opportunity and then my home was on top of the bank where the bank manager was. So I only paid one one kind of repayment to the bank was and I had my home and everything and electricity and gas and everything was, the one bill fit it all if you like. Now today a lot of people are taking leases on premises and the landlord says, like this, 
come in, in into the parlour said the spider to the fly it's the prettiest little parlour you ever did spy but up go the rents the rents go up and then if you have a small dime downturn cash flow doesn't allow it and suddenly they're gone out of business it is tough and it's Very. ruthless really at times it is here today gone tomorrow yeah. anyway let's move on to this wonderful book called St Patrick's Plate food inspired by the saint and his saga now let me ask you this. It's quite different, this book, or say this, uh, to most contemporary books of its genre, may I say, Terry. Yeah. Um, you're going back to St. Patrick's time and the 5th century. Is that possible? It is, really, because if you think about it, when St. Patrick came paddling across the Irish Sea uh, uh, to re-Christianise to Christianize us, he landed on an island of Skerries. And... Uh, I was always curious when I came to Skerries in 1972 why the local people weren't uh, as ebullient about St. Patrick, but they were very embarrassed because they were accused of raiding his little island while he was out there, stealing his goat, bringing it ashore, killing and eating it. But the Skerries lads would always say it was the Rush lads ate his goat. So there was quite a deal of embarrassment so I could never really understand that. But really, I was kind of interested in what Patrick might have eaten at that time. So, of course, there's loads of edible seaweed. There would be periwinkles, there would be crabs, there would be lobsters. And if you branch out along that and sort of think what he might have eaten to sustain himself as he went right through Ireland, that's really what inspired the book. So you've really gone back and put yourself in the saint's shoes and the people that surrounded him at that stage, looked at what was available here and then added that yes. little ingredient of yours to the to Imagination, the yes. yes. If you can imagine, Terry, he's going up the coast probably. Uh, he would have looked at, 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 at what the sea state was off the island and it would have been easier to go north than it would have been around Holt Head because the winds were primar- primarily southwest. So he could have reached up along the coast and come up here to Drogheda and up to Strangford Lock. But as he made his way along the coast, he would have met various chieftains in, 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 uh, and, uh, and the chieftain being very hospitable in those old days, the chief would have invited him to dinner and he would have thrown uh, a whole few joints of an animal into a pit, throwed a lump of hot stones in on top of that, water in on top of that and boiled it up and gave it to Patrick. And it, uh, Patrick would have said, well, thank you very much, chief. That was lovely. But if you don't mind, I'll cook tomorrow night. And so Patrick, coming from Roman stock, would have been used to lemons and garlic and oranges and grapes and a bit of wine and stuff like that. So he would have added a little... Uh, a little je ne sais quoi to, to the dinner and the chieftain probably said, oh my goodness, Patrick, that was lovely. What did you say, this Christianity business? Do y'all eat like that? We do, yeah, that's how we, oh, well, I'll become a Christian. So <laughs> He used so, food in the did, conversion of the, the, the native Irish. And you know what, it's still going on today because around the dinner table, nobody grows old and everybody gets on well and women know that a man's, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. So it's still going on today. <laughs> and that will never, ever change, let me say. I've picked out some of uh, the uh, 
the in- from my perspective, uh, the interesting ones, uh, as I went through the book, you mentioned there uh, the milling of uh, the flour locally. You went yes, to... the White River Mill, something yes. done near. Now, in the book, you have a brown bread on page 22, locked. Derg, yeah. And of course, that is another place that's synonymous yes. with the saint as well. Tell me a little bit about this recipe. Well, it, it's it's stone ground uh, flour, which would be milled in, in Ireland. And you, you need uh, buttermilk uh, with it and a, a few pinches of salt. And if you had any butter or any cream left over, just... Uh, uh, mix it all together and you need bread soda really to rise yes. it because it's fairly dense mm. uh, flour and it's very easy to bake but because it's unprocessed it's really very good for your body and your bowel movements <laughs> Are you yeah. listening folks? You yeah. need to do this the yes. lockdown brown bread Yes But uh, I, I looked at the images and the, the pictures are beautiful uh, yes. in the book as well and I can see St. Patrick's Purgatory there on, yeah. on the island besides, beside the recipe but here's the thing you, you say as well that back in the 5th century bread was bread was part of what people ate Oh yes of course and in, in Ireland uh, like at that time there were wild oats so we know so uh, they actually made beer from it and uh, obviously a gruel or a porridge as well they could boil them up so oats was always a very important part in Ireland and of course we ended up making whiskey and and putching from it as well and and didn't we did because one one thing we we really had to uh, work on the book because we had to consider, look, a cookbook without potatoes. But it was Sir Walter Raleigh brought potatoes to Ireland. So there isn't, you know, Patrick wouldn't have had potatoes at that time. So we had to look at what would have been available, but the wild oats would have been there. Mm. And of course, then seaweed, like carrageen moss, to use it for thickening things. You won't get a very vibrant colour in jams without using sugar, but sugar has become very unpopular I know we still like sugar and we can't get away from using it, but we really should cut down because diabetes and everything. So a lot of modern illnesses have come about by us preserving things. Absolutely. And you have actually a a section in the book about the carrageen and about the mosses as well. There's something else caught me eye because I made this a few times myself. The elderflower cordial. I've made that with the the blooms on a number of occasions. But you take it a stage further. You've an elderflower elderflower summer fruit soup. Yes. Yes. Well, if you pick the raspberries and gooseberries and black currants and uh, you won't get blackberries quite at that time, but you could do. And you 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 you, uh, you you chill the elderflower, champagne as we could call it, because it does get effervescent, and put it into it's just a lovely, lovely dessert. It is. I, I can tell you the cordial is absolutely marvellous. And when I was looking at this, I thought, why didn't I ever think of that before to throw the fruit into it to add to it? Yeah. But you've done that. This book is called, folks, St. Patrick's Place. And it's food inspired by the saint and his saga. It's by Terry McCoy. Terry McCoy's with us on Late Lunch. We have a signed copy to give away. Here's the question. What's the name of the island off Scaries? What is the name of the famous island just off Scaries? Terry, he was about to say it there. Please hold your count. 
council. Don't give it away to them. We want to give them the book. What is the island's name? Get your answers to us as soon as you can. 086-1800-658 by WhatsApp or text. And we'll pick somebody for this lovely book before the end of the show. Terry's going nowhere. Uh, I'm delighted to have him with me on Late Lunch. Stay with us. Yes, keep the comments coming to us. Oh, Jerry, you're bringing back memories with Terry on the show this afternoon. I absolutely adore the Red Bank in Scaries. Lovely to hear Terry Witch on the show this afternoon. Wish him all the best. Keep those coming co- comments coming to us. Have you been in the Red Bank? Terry with us today. 086-1800-658 by WhatsApp or text or 1850-715-958 if you'd like to call in. It's nice to hear people, you know, yes. comment in that vein about very you. heartwarming isn't yes, it? it is he's not going back though he's not going back he's on a new path now altogether with this wonderful new book you know what i smiled when i opened the page and there is poacher's rabbit terry we were reared on them yes me too were you yes in the in the 50s my father uh, we had f- they had five children my father and mother so of course food was fairly scarce and, and that but he used to go out and lamp rabbits and he had a cocker spaniel that would go around and, uh, I suppose, unfortunately, break their necks. But we we were reared on it. Mm. And then the pressure cooker was kind of used, this hissing, threatening thing in the kitchen. <laughs> but, but the rabbit stew was absolutely important. I remember eating the tiny little bones, sucking on them. Oh, and that. Yeah. beautiful, beautiful. And we had them every which way, as you can imagine. Do you know what I was to say to you? I know you've included a little pasta in the book here. Is that really taking a liberty, going back to the 5th century and Patrick? No, because pasta actually was created by the Chinese. And they they, they would have come up, that the Venetians would have kind of been down there and brought back herbs and spices, the Venetian sailors. So they would have brought pasta, kind of the ingredients for pasta, back to Rome. So therefore, they, they used it, but not, they, they wouldn't have made pizzas out of it or anything like that. But they did kind of with uh, with flour, ground flour, probably primitive enough, ground it up, and all you needed was a ye- an egg yolk uh, and a little water and a, a little milk, and you'd, you had your pasta. So it would have been there before potatoes, so it would have been popular. And Patrick would have eaten that before he came back to Ireland. Yes. So he could have done that. So we teach you how to make your own pasta. And you have a section as well on uh, sweets or desserts, as we we, yes. we we would know it. And I see a beautiful orange ghetto in there. But early summer rhubarb log, I'm sure rhubarb goes back a long way yes, in this does. country. Yes, it does. And of course, in the early spring, it's very vigorous how it grows, you know. So you have to keep pulling the stalks of it. So it's it's just it's just great, and again you could kind of thicken it with seaweed rather than using too much sugar. Now I jump on to something that um, is again something that I have had the joy of making over the years, and I'm talking about slow gin. And the, the the slows widely available free on yes. the, the the blackthorn tree, isn't but it? But you Black- need you need to know how to forage, don't you? You do. Yeah. Is that something? Like I'm here talking to you, yeah. and you know what I'm talking about as well. We forage rabbits. We went out and picked the field mushrooms. We yes. got the the berries from from the hedges, the, including the slows. It's a dying art. It is. I think probably our era, Jerry. We must have been very poor at explaining that to our sons and daughters, really. And then kind of modern Ireland has got them all so busy that there's no tradition of handing this out. 
but our ancestors ta- taught us or ne- really didn't teach us but like there wasn't much to do in Ireland there wasn't television and there wasn't internet and all that so we had to go out on a Sunday afternoon or in the evenings long evenings in the summer and do that with our parents you know so we learnt it but it's our responsibility now to hand this on to the next generation I really feel it I couldn't agree with you more and it's something that we need to pass on and mustn't be lost the one thing I was to say to you about the slow gin that I never put in would the almonds do the almonds yes. give it another kick? They do, they do, they do. The lovely nuttiness, you know, and uh, kind of a nutty sweetness. And of course, almonds kind of really can grow in Ireland, but they're it's very hard to dry them. They they're always a bit wet, dampish here. So mm. so we use a lot. There's a couple of recipes using almonds, but again, like Patrick coming from Roman times, he might have had a few bags of almonds with them in his. In a, in a, I'm sure he would. Yeah. Absolutely. Let's talk about the book because you, you made a conscious decision with this book not to go the direct publishing route, to go to the established, uh, you know, publishers of books. Why? Well, uh, that route is very well uh, known, and I know a lot of chefs that have written cookbooks and very, very good cookbooks. But I don't know of very many chefs that ever made any money. In fact, they lost money through publishing the books because you would get an advance fee from the publisher and then maybe five pence a book after that. So it really didn't work. So we had to uh, think a bit about how we would do this. And, of course, using modern technology now, like the internet and everything else, it allowed me the opportunity to be able to sell this book over the internet and self-publish. Now, we got the book printed in Baldoyle Industrial Estate, so I'm really proud of that, that we've printed the book in Ireland and we've given employment in Ireland and that already the book is on sale in America, so we're an export. We're really proud of being able to export using Irish expertise. So it's on sale in, in Bethlehem in Pennsylvania in an, in an Irish uh, uh, shop there. But, but the reason it is on sale around the world is that you buy it, you can buy this book online. It's self-published and online, stpatricksplate.com. Yes. Go to the website and you can order your copy of the book there no matter where you are in this country or the world. Yes. Simple as. Yes. And it's on sale, I believe, all over Scaries. Well, that's a no-brainer anyway, isn't it? You can go in and get the physical copy in Scaries. Exactly. But if you were here in Drada and you went into the local bookshop, you wouldn't get it. Okay. You know, that's the yes. difficulty. Yes. But however, we'll see if we get enough encouragement and the bookshops come on to us and they express an interest and we will, of course, supply them. Oh, I think really? if there's anybody listening today in the book business in Louth and Meath or Dublin or beyond, this is a beautiful book. And look at where it's coming from. The brilliant Terry McCoy. It is beautifully produced. The pictures are marvellous. The recipes are wonderful. And the concept is new and fresh and different, may I say, as well. Well, thank you, Jerry. That's just exactly what I want. To oh, no, it is. I, yeah. I mean that yeah, sincerely. Yeah, no, I, no. I, I, I really do. Um a new door has opened for you, really, to be honest, when I see this. What about a book, Red Bank Revisited or something? Well, you, you never know. Keep encouraging. Oh, yes. so we want Paper to Paper never refused ink. <laughs> 
But, uh, you know, to leave behind what you did and, as you say, adjusting, this is, must be a real help to you as well, that you're staying in touch. You know, you're yes. in the game still. Another aspect of this is that uh, everybody's talking about Black Friday now. But there's actually a suggestion that there should be a Green Friday and that we should try and buy on Black Friday everything that's green and produced in Ireland. And this book is green. Very green and produced in Ireland. I'm with so. you on that one. We have to support and look after our own because if we don't, the future is bleak. And that's yeah. the message we want to get across. Anyway, let's make it a green Friday this Friday. And one of the greens is St. Patrick's Plate, food inspired by the saint in the saga by the wonderful Terry McCoy. And just to mention again, stpatricksplate.com is where you can order the book. It's been a pleasure. See you again sometime. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. Thank you. Just to remind you that the LMFM Sports Star Awards is happening in the Fairways Hotel in Dundalk on the 5th of December. Our guests on the night include Dundalk Football Club, Retoat, uh, Boxer Amy Broadhurst, Ashburn Rugby Club, Loud Ladies, Kildocky Hurling Club and the LMFM Sports team will all be there. Would you like to go along to the big awards night in the uh, fairways on the 5th of December? If you would, all you have to do is text the word text these two words, Sports Star to 086-1800-658 That's Sports Star to 086-1800-658 with your name and your details. Seats are limited so if you'd like to go along on that night you'd be most welcome. So that's what you do. Next while 086-1800-658 text or you can WhatsApp us as well. Now moving on on late lunch today, I hardly need to remind you of the horror story which unfolded in Essex in recent weeks where 39 people from Vietnam who were being trafficked illegally into the UK perished in a refrigerated container. Today at the Old Bailey in London, Morris Robinson pleaded guilty to plotting to assist illegal immigration. Since the year 2000, Adrian Riley from Drogheda has worked in this field, including an assignment in Hanoi in Vietnam, and she's with me on late lunch today. You're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for for, for joining me. Just in general terms, with what happened uh, with these people, and subsequently, sure, we've had a couple more cases in in the interim. Is this the tip of the iceberg? And um, I think it is the tip of the iceberg in the sense that this just reflects what's happening on a daily basis around the world. It is a global industry as such, where thousands and thousands of people are moved, shipped, trafficked, smuggle, smuggled um, as, as part of the migratory process that we have Basically, in relation to the way we live right now, we live in a a capitalist economy where goods and people move, some freely and some not freely. And actually, I started working on this in 2000 when I did my master's in human rights law. And at that time, it was just starting to come back into the international arena. Um, Organisations were just starting to look at trafficking and slavery again after a big gap of decades. And um, I really thought it was just an exploration for me in terms of something I was passionately interested in from childhood about how people are enslaved or the human condition. And it was more an academic interest. I never thought it would actually be something that would be a job where I would have to advocate 
or research or become part of training programs for people who were most at risk or most vulnerable to be actually sold and bought. To me, it's it's still unfathomable that this is actually something that I do. And what you've said uh, about this in recent times is that from you started, you mentioned 2000 and here we are in 2019. It's gone backwards, has it, in a way, in, in, in trying to manage this, deal with this? I think a lot of things have happened. Um, I started working in 2000 and really worked mainly up till 2009, specifically in this area. And for me, a lot of things uh, dovetail. One, it's about a human rights issue. Two, it's a criminal law issue. Three, it's a migration issue. And at the same time, we have an explosion in mass globalisation. We have the internet. So we have kind of like a perfect storm and um, we don't really know how to respond. And let's not forget, while human rights now is a common narrative, in 2000, I was the first of 16 people to graduate with a Master's in International Human Rights Law on the island of Ireland from the Irish Centre of Human Rights. So again, at that, you know, Maybe it is uh, terrible and we should have done more, but we, in one way, we're in the infancy of learning about all of this. It's interesting and you make the point so well. We are victims of the advance in technology and the connectivity of this whole planet. I hear what you're saying. Now, you mentioned you've worked in Vietnam. You've been out there working on the ground. Let me ask you this. There's no war anymore in Vietnam. No famine. I'm not saying the standard of living is anything like the West, if you want to make a comparison with that. Why do people want to get out? Well, it's a massive country. It has nearly 80 million people. So that you have a huge population. When I went to live in Vietnam, what struck me, and I'm well-travelled, all my family emigrated, we've lived all over the world. What struck me was the absolute wealth and the absolute poverty. So even in Ireland, growing up in the 70s and 80s, you know, doctors didn't have spanking new cars. But in Vietnam, there there was... The the difference between the wealthy and the poor is massive. Um, And so there is so many people that need work and the places of poverty have dire poverty. So you're talking about... uh, I have... People I know, Vietnamese people, who are my colleagues and friends that I worked with, grew up without electricity and kind of like my parents' time. Yet you have cities like Hanoi that have the most amazing, you know, um, houses that you could ever see, the most amazing hotels, the five-star luxury that we've only got in Ireland in the last 20 years. Um, and what, going back, though, to why, why those 39 people would end up in the back of a truck, they come from the poorest areas of Vietnam. They, while they may not come from dire poverty, they would come from places where their parents might have four fields and two small houses that they could remortgage. So they would be asset rich and cash poor. And in Ireland, again, we all know what that is about. And so they might mortgage a field or two fields. They might borrow money for relatives to try and get one child to another place where they could earn a living and possibly send home money. We know the story. We are this story. We have been, millions of us, over the decades going out across the world. But here's the thing. 
putting themselves into hock, you know what I'm talking about, into debt by mortgaging what mm. they have, giving that money to unscrupulous people, and at the end of that journey, as you know, if they get off a lorry somewhere and they manage to make it into countries, shall the issues only begin for them? It's not that simple, because in our eyes, we have images of these unscrupulous characters that are identifiable. In small villages, it's word of mouth, it's trusted people, it's people who've come back, who seemingly have made good, it's relatives who are trusting somebody else. We also know this story. You know, we know of people that land in London, that landed in New York, that Mary Jo down the road knows Mickey Pat, who knew somebody. We've all slept on those floors. We've all had to use our connections. So it's like... If we just picture it like an Irish town or an Irish village or somebody knows somebody, they're trusting the process. They're trusting that the people that say they're going to help them will help them. And I have to say, Vietnamese are the most amazing community based, family based, gorgeous people that I've ever met. I lived in Japan for four years and I loved that. And it was absolute cracker and I was young and it was fantastic. But the Vietnamese are my kind of people. They live outdoors, they sing, they love fun, they believe in community. And so that's why I think it really affected me so much, um, this story. Yes. Now, stay, stay, stay on that line for a moment, as you described the people. And I've heard that before about the Vietnamese people. Um, you know, when something like this happens and, and the horror of it, is it not a wake-up call for others? You know what I mean? To say, whoa, there's something you'll miss here now. There's something just not right. Absolutely. But n- do we ever believe anything will happen to us? Our gut instinct and our, our gut human response to yes. everything that we do, we never actually believe that will happen to us. We all believe that we have wit that we we can trust people. When we wake up in the morning, we never believe the atrocity of the day and every single one of us will suffer some atrocity, some sadness, some unbelievable event that we will say for the rest of our lives, I can't believe that happened that day. Because it's not it's not a human instinct to really believe that other people can hurt each other so badly or do such horrific things to each other. And I text my really good friend, Tuan, who lives in London. He's married to my friend, Siobhan. We were all in Vietnam together. He's Vietnamese that morning and said, Tuan, I am so sorry. And he texts back and said, Adrian, there are bad people everywhere. So I was embarrassed and apologetic that there was an Irish connection. But he was saying, it's irrelevant. You know, it's so irrelevant. With the news that flashes around the world in milliseconds now when something breaks and people will become aware of this in Vietnam and other countries indeed where people are fleeing and some people we have to say are fleeing war persecution, they just have to get out Mm. Um, this is a massive question what is the answer to all of this because you know in the European Union we like to protect our borders and the movement of people you see what's happening with Trump in the United States to get to Australia now you know what I mean you have to do this do that what is the answer well I don't have the answer obviously but what I do know is that we live in a very a very strange time where we have never had more wealth in the world 
nobody needs to go hungry. Nobody needs to lie under, you know, uh, an open sky in the freezing cold. So the answer is there in terms of fiscal capacity. The money is there. But it is how do we construct a world? If I'm a human rights advocate, I believe that all humans are equal. How do we construct a world in equality of treatment, and I, which just means basic care, health, education, housing and food and water? For me, it's not that difficult. We have enough wealth in the world to give everybody those things. Um, if we started with that, they could be the b- building blocks. You t- believe that would make a huge difference. And, and those are the necessities. You're right. Yeah. Those are the things we need to, to, to live. But you see as well, you're right, people see the other side. They see what they could potentially have. You know, the glamour of it, when you, if you'd like to call Western life glamorous at times, at times I question it me, myself, to be honest with you. Mm. Is it really that glamorous? But you'll probably always have that within people too go to the top, earn as much as they can, be great? Well, I think if you're looking on it from a perspective where there's no opportunity, where there's poverty and no opportunity, people have to make hard choices. When, When I was growing up in the late 80s, early 90s, there was not much work in Ireland. All of my family emigrated. I emigrated my brother and my two sisters. You know, we were economic migrants because we wanted to make a better life for ourselves where we could either come back and have something here or send money home or, you know, maybe stay where we stayed and have a nice life and be able to come back frequently. So two did that and the two But you didn't have to get into the back of a container truck. You could go to Britain where we have a sort of a, you know, an unwritten agreement. They come this way, we go that way. Hopefully it'll continue after the next few months. Uh, You know, America was a destination as well. There's been a clamp down there now with Trump. Mm. But you know what I'm saying? But lots of Irish people did go illegally and are illegal in countries. Yes. So it's, this is not a new story. This is us. We are them. We mightn't mightn't have went in the back of a truck, but 150 years ago, we went in coffin ships. Yes. You know, we were desperate people 150 years ago. And actually, recently, a relative of mine did our family history. And five generations ago, the children born of my family during the famine, their parents died when they were under 10. Who raised those children and how did they live? Because if they didn't, I wouldn't be alive. You know, so we are all connected to these stories. And I think when we think of us and them and why and how, if we reflect a little harder and a little longer about humanity and how we get to live and how others died, we might, you know, kind of have a better understanding of why people do what they do. Besides Vietnam and the people you came across there, you've been to China. Uh, I know in the early days in this field of work, I see you were in the Ukraine as an observer there in in the elections. When you reflect on your life and where you've been and where you worked, is that the basic want in, in people in all the countries you've been to, to maybe get out to better themselves? Is that the basic human desire? I'm not sure if people want to get out to better themselves. What I do know is I've travelled and lived in a lot of places and the basic human desire remains the same. People want to get up in the morning, have food, find love, have a job, pay their bills and go to bed at night. Some people have ambition. Some people, their ambition is very much where they are. Other people's ambitions are much bigger. 
So they want to see that world that they can now look at on their phone. They want to physically be there. They want the chance to create something beyond where they are. And other people are happy to stay where they are. And I don't see that any different in Ireland or in Vietnam or in Japan or in Denmark where my sister lives or New York City where my other sister lives. So and my brother was in Japan for 23 years before he came back to Drogheda. You know, so I don't see much in hu- difference in human beings. But here's the thing. The system you live under. I've been watching a very interesting programme about China these last uh, couple of Sundays and the final part is coming up next week. And it really is eye-opening to look at that country and how it's evolved in the last four decades. But they live under a communist regime. And in other countries we talk about there, it's not as free are as easy as, you know, Britain, Ireland, America, etc., the bulk of European countries. Mm. Is that a driving force as well for people to get out from under the system they're in? I would say for some people it may be. People who, maybe like me, who have more of a human rights slant and are trying to advocate for, you know, different types of rights. And it's quite interesting you ask that question because when I went to work in Vietnam... I went as a rights-based specialist for the International Organisation for Migration. But at that time, they couldn't call me a human rights-based specialist. Now, things have changed even within Vietnam through the work of the UN and the work of the IOM because, you know, that was considered a Western ideal, human rights, a Western creation, the Universal Decla- Declaration of Human Rights post-World War One from the victors. So... Again, you were asking at the beginning, was it were things terrible now? And I was saying yes and no, but I still feel we're in the infancy of this whole discussion around trafficking, around slavery, around human rights. And mentioning those words, we have to realise as well that people come here, and let's talk about Ireland, for example, and, and the UK, our neighbours, these islands here, and often people come in and they're totally exploited. You know, they're from the frying pan to the fire. Yeah. And you know, you know, when you, when when I when I think about this today, as we sit here in this region, there may be people, there may be that are being exploited by us. Yes, there are, and this is the hard question that I still don't have an answer to. People say to me all the time, "What can we do? How will how do how will we know? And what can we do?" There are a number of industries that attract exploitation, and they are the fishing industry, the fruit industry the nail bars, um, restaurant industry. So they're kind of the key industries where we need to be a little more cautious and alert. What would we do then if we had a suspicion? Well, my advice would be to contact the Immigration Council of Ireland. They deal with this. I think it's a bit more difficult if you contact guards. Um, It's a bit more complex. But the Immigration Council is used to dealing with trafficked persons and used to um, signposting people where to go or they would know more what to do from a more human rights approach for everybody, which I think is really important as opposed to a criminal approach. Because trafficking is about a crime against a person, whereas smuggling is a crime against the state and illegal migration is a crime against the state. And I guess one of the problems is they they get mixed up on top of everything else. That's so true. It really is. Those three areas. Um, When you look at Ireland today and you're well familiar with the issues we've had about direct provision and 
you know, looking after people who come here in strange circumstances and they have nowhere to go and they're fleeing and they look to Ireland as perhaps a place where they can get going again. Do you think we've selectively forgot about the millions who've gone? Um, I don't think we have. I, I don't think we're as dismissive as that. I think we are also on a steep learning curve. I remember when direct provision started and I was horrified and I remain horrified that this is actually our institutional response to people in the most vulnerable and most at risk. Um, Again, it's taken so long for the issue of direct provision to be given the airwaves and given the time. It's taken so many court cases to get labour rights for people. Uh, You know, it's it's nearly 20 years, nearly the whole time period I've been working in human rights. Um, but I think we haven't forgotten. I think it's in our core. I think generally we try to make things better, but I think it takes an awful lot of work for human rights organisations and for people like me. It's about courts. It's about pressure points. It's about politicians and, you know, we should not forget where we came from and where our ancestors had to go so we could live where we live now and we should help everybody. I think that's a lovely message to finish out with today. I've really enjoyed our conversation, Edrie, and thank you so much for joining me on the show today and continued success with your advocating and the work that you're involved in. Adrian Riley, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. At the recent Irish Red Cross Humanitarian Awards, uh, my next guest picked up a prestigious acknowledgement. Austin Campbell, we've met him before on Late Lunch. He's the CEO of My Streets Ireland and he was awarded with the Innovation for Change Award. Austin, thank you for dropping into Late Lunch today. Thanks for having me in, Jerry. It's great to have you back with us. Congratulations on the award. Were you shocked, surprised, chuffed, what? I was shocked to I was shocked to be nominated. <clears throat> so I got uh, an email one day to say I was up for an award and rang them up. I don't I don't know who nominated me, so that was the initial shock. And then on the evening to see the other nominees and see everybody in the room and a lot of award ceremonies, you know, in advance. You might have a speech, you might have something ready. And with this one you didn't, but I presumed that maybe the winner did know they were going to win and I I was full not expecting to win it and when it was called out I was absolutely shocked yeah had you you, preparation done or do I take it you hadn't no I had no preparation done (laughs) so you just went up and off the cuff just went up got the award and yeah it was it was amazing amazing good man yourself well deserved may I say just remind listeners the My Streets project it began in Drogheda Yes, it began out of Drogheda Homeless Aid, which is uh, an emergency accommodation provider there in the North Strand. I um, worked there from 2013 up until about six months ago, and it would have been born out of, I suppose, frustration for people who live in emergency accommodations night by night, and it's completely impossible to engage in any normal education or employment if you don't know where you're going to be staying the next day. Um, so we came up with something really flexible that would actually work and that would celebrate a skill set that lots of people who, I suppose, have suffered trauma and are coming through the other side would have, and that's the ability to tell a story and a very important story to tell. So we came up with that idea and then we developed it and then we found out that there was an actual interest from people in doing the tours so the model could generate a revenue. So people paid to do the tour 
and the tour guide gets paid 40 euros and any excess revenue goes into running the program so it's a sustainable social enterprise it's not charity the tour guides are actually creating value and they're being paid for that Wonderful, wonderful concept and giving a meaning again to people, as you say, who've been through a massive trauma in their lives. It went from Drogheda, it's been adapted widely in Dublin. Yeah, so we moved up to Dublin in uh, maybe October last year and now in Dublin we've had maybe around 30 people engaged to the programme. Altogether we've had 55 people over the last few years we have eight current tour guides up in Dublin, and over the last couple of years, we've delivered, I think, tours to 12,000 people. What a great story. It just gets better and better. Now, I, I, I'm sure there is an ambition with the project to roll it out further around Ireland, and I do believe you've been contacted even from abroad about this. Yes, we've been contacted, like, where like South America, the US, from... Um, councillors in Philadelphia from people in LA. It's obviously a huge problem in um, California. Um, loads of different um, requests from around Europe. So at the moment we're working on a kind of model that safeguards the programme. We have a very particular training programme that's accessible and it's fun and it needs to be that, I suppose, for the My Streets brand to work. It needs to be completely accessible. So how can we safeguard that? And then the other part, I suppose, is funding. To date, I've been running it voluntarily. I worked in homeless services and it was a natural add-on to that job. But as it grows, there's more and more need for coordination and all of that. There's a lot of work. Um, So the next step would be to try to get a funder that would work with the programme and help us to expand. So that is what is needed at this stage. If you were to make one call here today on foot of your national recognition and the way this has been adapted in Dublin and, you know, it'll roll out, I'm sure, all over Ireland, it's funding. That's what's needed. Yeah, well, I'd invite anybody who's interested to come on a tour, see what it's like Mm. and to get involved that way. It's... um yeah, like we, we, the word works impactful and if you can see the outcome and you can meet the people who've come through the programme, um, I think that would be a good way. Really of, have an impact on yeah. you. Direct funding from the state coffers is not an option? Or do you not want that? Um, it would be definitely an option to consider if we were offered it, but at the moment I suppose why the programme has worked is because we completely drive the mission of it. It's completely accessible the people on the programme lots of times would begin off in a kind of chaotic way if they're living in emergency accommodation they mightn't come every day mm. and then because it's not tied to any um, Department of Social Protection payment or anything like this people aren't penalised and then we go for lunch after the course every day and people kind of come together and it's just got a different vibe and if it was funded the reporting is different and that's why it's gotten to this point so it'd be interesting talking to Anybody willing to offer us funding, but there's a the program kind of has a form now that works and that we'd, we'd have to continue. And you want to preserve that and, and, yeah. and, and not change it. And I can understand that as well when you have uh, such a success. So if there's somebody out there who uh, might like to, you know, help. Um, are there many philanthropists in, in this neck of the woods and beyond 
the My Streets project is absolutely brilliant and it's making a real, real difference. So if it's uh, possible at all, Austin would love to hear from you. How do people contact you, by the way? Better let them know. They'll be wondering. We have his number That's anyway. sad. That's a very good point. Um, so we have a website, www.mystreetsireland.com or if somebody pops me an email, mystreetsireland at gmail.com. And this man and his people do this voluntarily. Hey, you have to put bread on the table. You have to live, young fella. And at the moment, you're director with the Robert Robert Emmett uh, Community Development Project uh, in the southwest inner city of Dublin. What's that about? Um, so in Dublin, the inner city in Dublin, there'll be 13 community development projects, kind of like, I suppose, the resource centre we have here in Drogheda. We'd be community centre there for the community we would offer a drop-in service we'd help people with whatever they need we have two core programs as well which are an after-school program so the kids come from the local school we help them with their homework every day make them food run different sporting things for them we have an employability program for migrant women there would have been two direct provision centres in the locality of where we are Hatch Street and um Watergate, which uh, have actually both closed down, but we were working with um, women who were resident here who had the right to work, and we'd train them up on setting up their own business. We would provide them with, we'd introduce them to employers and help them to progress onto employment. Um, we have a couple of social enterprises. We have something very similar to My Streets called Inner Shoes Walking Tours, and if anybody wants a real organic and true experience of Dublin 8 of the Liberties area that doesn't include um, I suppose like Guinness Storehouse and all of this are great tourism experiences but if somebody wants a little bit more social history if they go to www.innershoeswalkingtours.com we have really good uh, walking tours we have an inner city beekeeping project which is, is another social enterprise, we've got hives all over the city and we train people up in that we have loads of different things going on it's a joy to listen to you talk about what you do and fundamental to the fabric, obviously, of the community, Austin. Yeah, so the work I do, I suppose, up in Dublin, we're there to facilitate the community. We don't dictate to them. If there's any need there, if people come in, they want something, we would help them, like set up residence associations. We'd help advocate for them with the council. We would just help people go in the direction they want the community to go in. Look, homelessness is on the agenda big time and has been for how long now? You know, especially but in recent times, the last two years, it, it, it's up there. Realistically, for somebody who, who's walking the walk every day and at the heart of a community like you are and involved in the My Streets project, is any progress being made? Um, I suppose it depends on what statistics you use. <clears throat> But I think walking around Dublin and seeing it with your own eyes, seeing the amount of people on the street, um, seeing budgets growing and growing and growing for the provision of emergency accommodation, um, I don't think so. And the countries are getting wealthier, we have a lot of money. So really it's a philosophical thing, the money is there and it's like, it's how, how is the money spent, but I think the problem is getting worse. So despite all the figures and the statistics that will be uh, rolled out by ministers and government on television, on radio, in the newspapers, practically speaking, no. No, it's getting worse. But homelessness, like it isn't a thing in itself, it's the tin end of the wedge of a housing crisis. 
uh, and you fall off the cliff face of like not having a house, you go into homelessness, and it's very difficult to get out. There's more and more people going in, so it's it's only getting worse. For you guys who are on the coal face and all your colleagues and all the different schemes and projects around Dublin in the northeast here as well, do you not despair at times then? Um, you despair at uh, decision makers and not the. Yeah, you despair to decision makers, but I suppose we're there to serve people in the community who don't, who don't have a voice or who don't have the means to be where they want to be. So, I suppose you get the feeling that the work you do is more important at a time like this, and it's more important to commit yourself to that work, and you don't despair at the amount of work because. That's what you believe in. And yeah, that's what you can't you just walk away from it tomorrow because look at all the people who depend on you and the good that you do with so many people as well. This is going to be a huge issue. You know, there's an election coming here sooner rather than later in this country. Yeah, and it's how to capture the, I suppose, voice of the community to express themselves in the best way so politicians have to listen. So it's in politicians' best interests to listen to the community and that's what we'll be trying to do over the next few months. We hear a minister on about the employment levels, nearly greater now than Celtic Tiger times. We hear about the new bills that are happening more than ever. And yet, you tell me this. But it's who are the new bills for? Who are the jobs for? How much do the jobs pay? It's about the quality as well as the numbers. It's nice to hear... The reality on radio, I have to say. It's not nice in one sense, you know what I'm saying, Austin? And in another way, the honesty and, you know, the no-holds-barred approach you have here today to tell us what it's about should be a wake-up call for for everybody. Um, Do you see my... Back to my street and what you got the award for, the the, the reason you're here today from the Irish Red uh, Cross Humanitarian Awards. Do you feel it's only a matter of time, draw to Dublin extensively now, that it will roll out? Or will it be absolutely dependent on the funding? Um, No, I think it will roll out. We have conversations with a number of national homeless agencies about rolling it out through their service. Um, I think there is obviously big enough numbers of homeless people in every urban centre. There's so much history in the country that I think over the next year we'll be in another one or two locations. Terrific. I believe our invitation to you to come to us today has enabled you to reconnect yourself. Yeah, I haven't been in Drogheda, so I was, I'm from Julianstown, I lived here for the last six years, but I haven't been here in about six months, so after this I'm going to go to meet my auntie, I'm going to go and get my hair cut, I'm going to meet my dad in the lime kiln, yeah, lining everything up. Well listen, I'm delighted you've uh, taken time to drop into us today. We were thrilled. Uh, Honestly, when we heard of your great news and the award is so well deserved because, as you know, I met you a number of years ago here and you made a big impression on us here on the show and on LMFM radio. Continued success with my streets and with your wonderful work in the heart of Dublin. And let's hope today, two things I hope for after your visit. Number one, come on, there has to be funding out there to get behind the my streets. And yes, to the politicians listening, This crisis of homelessness and people on the streets is greater than ever. It needs serious addressing. And there's one wish for the new year, and there is an election coming, let me remind you, boys and girls, is that this is seriously tackled at long, long last. Austin Campbell, again, congratulations on your wonderful award. Thank you for joining me on the show. 
Thanks, Jerry. Take care. The Media Royal House Draw gives you the chance to win a three-bedroom family house in County Meath. All funds raised go towards the Park Talton Stadium redevelopment, with the draw taking place on December 28th, that's not too long now, at 3 o'clock at Navin Shopping Centre. Everyone who buys a ticket from any GAA club in Meath or by logging on to royalhousedraw.com between now and this Friday will be entered into a special Black Friday draw for the chance to win 10 extra draw tickets. And throughout this week here on LMFM, Eddie Caffrey will also be giving you the chance to win one of these special tickets. So stay tuned for Eddie coming up after late lunch each day. And the best of luck to you there with that one. On Friday, we finished late lunch with a wonderful young lady from Mead, Sarah O'Rourke is her name. And she's a milliner. She was heading to the High Style Awards in Cork. Very prestigious. And there's great news. She's on the line. Afternoon, Sarah. Hi, Jerry. How are you? I'm good, very happy today. <laughs> I'm sure you are. You won! I won, I won Milner of the Year, I did, so all over the moon with myself. Well, 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 this is, uh, excuse the pun, another feather in your cap for sure. Oh, definitely. I mean, there was initially 2,215 nominees for every category, and then there was 44 winners, to, so to be one of those, you know... Some achievements. <laughs> and you were telling me on Friday, you travelled in hope rather than expectation, but to come out top of the pile. I know. Well, I know. well, well. Were you, were you teaching today or are you off? No, I've just been working from home today doing um, different kind of PR bits. And I've had someone from America contact me actually to do a show. Mm-hmm. So... Oh, it's all exploded today. <laughs> well, you know, that is just the start of these floodgates which will open now for you because a complete new vista, as you know, is yours for the taking at this stage. I'm absolutely delighted for you. I really enjoyed our chat on Friday and we were just, myself and Louise were talking afterwards and we were saying, by God, that girl, she really is something else. And you've delivered, you've won anyway. I know. I know, I still can't believe it. I'm mm. kind of sitting here going, oh yeah, I actually did it. I really did it. So yeah, it came as a complete shock because they were announcing it. And I got, you know, you kind of aren't paying attention to all the awards. And then I heard Milliner and then, you know, sat up straight and I was like, oh, oh, here we go. And then they announced my name and I was like, no. And yeah, it was me. <laughs> <laughs> so there you are and you're invited to the States on day one. Where will this end? Oh my God, you have I a know. wonderful future ahead of you now, may I say, Sarah. And oh, well... Well it's only deserved. The stars anyway. Yeah, it is. It is indeed. But it's a great step forward for you. And we just wanted to put a little call into you to say again, congratulations and to tell our listeners that you actually went to Cork and won the big award there for Milner of the Year. And people can check you out on sarandendesigns.com. Yeah, that's right. Thank you for Very taking well. our call. Wish you well. Take Thank care. You. Bye, Sarah. Bye bye. Bye bye. That's S A R. A-D-E-N, saradendesigns.com. More information there. Isn't it great? And I want to say congratulations as well to Mike and Paul from Funky Fashion Frolics. The boys won as well and picked up an award at the High Style Awards. Should them lads just win all the time? The winners all the way and another gong for them now. Well done, boys. Congratulations to you too. You're with Late Lunch on LMFM Radio. The Christmas lights in Drogheda, they didn't go on last Friday because of the weather. Did you hear about this, Louise? Did you hear about the lights? Did you go down to, 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 to see the switch on, no? No, I, I knew about Santi coming up the river. He came up the he river. Up the river, but it was too wet to bring the kids. Santi came up the river. He Santi did, came he came up, up the river. river. But the lights didn't go on. And then it was planned for yesterday, Sunday. 
I don't know what happened there. I, I don't think there was a, a formal event. Was there yesterday? Did anything happen? They went on, I think, anyway. Yes? Some of the them, wire. I believe. Oh, right. I don't know if they all did, but we can... There you go. Anyone care to come on and clarify to us what actually happened? Or uh, You know, they're on now. I, I, I know they're on now, but there was some and confusion. And I've seen people uh, commenting about this, and I've had people on to me this morning to say, you're going to talk about this. What happened? We went down on Friday, and then at the last minute, it's all cancelled. It was disappointing for an awful lot of people. Listen, the weather, come on. The Frostville happened up the road. Magnificent in Dundalk, and the weather was similar. Dundalk, Drogheda on Friday as well. It's Irish weather, Louise, isn't it? It is. You have to kind of dress for the weather you, and expect you the do worst. and expect the worst as well. If you've anything to say about the lights, come on, get in touch with us on the show. Love to hear from you. 86 658 by WhatsApp or text. You can call in 1850-715-958. I want to dedicate a song, this song, this next song to a very special lady. Her name is Mina Finnegan. She's from Dulekin, County Meath. And I met her granddaughter, Shauna, at the Business Awards in the City North Hotel on uh, Saturday evening. And she tells me that Mina is the biggest fan of late lunch in the world. She's listening today. Mina, we love you. This one's for you. Terry McCoy with us top of the show. Maura Buckley's been on to say that she stayed and dined in the Red Bank. It was a beautiful place with wonderful food. Nice to hear from you, Maura, this afternoon. The island directly off Scaries. The answer we were looking for to win the book was St. Patrick's Island. And I have a signed copy of St. Patrick's Place uh, by Terry McCoy. And it's going this afternoon to Margaret Hanrity in Laytown. Well done to you, Margaret. And thanks to everybody who entered there. Another message from Phyllis. Hey, Jerry, enjoyed your chat about the local bees and honey last week on the show. And just to tell you that the Landlayer honey, I was able to pick it up in Pats in Laytown. And I believe they also have it at Cope a Crazy Fruits and people are buying it by the new time. I ain't surprised, Phyllis. Thanks indeed for that lovely message. Now we have an amazing rescue story for you now. I'm joined on the line by Ivor Kenny. Good afternoon, Ivor. How are you doing, Jerry? How are things? I'm good. Thanks for taking our call. T- just tell us, you're the manager where? Of the Bettystown Town Centre Complex in Bettystown. Okay. And on Saturday, you heard strange noises. I did, yeah. We couldn't figure out if it was kids messing or if it was a dog howling. We weren't sure, but it seemed to be coming from the building site, but we weren't sure, and it was night time, so it was unsafe to go in at night time, so I said I'd have a further investigation the first thing the following morning, you know? 
So on Sunday, you're pursuing your lines of inquiry. And what do you find or what do you come across? We found Charlie, the little, the little poor doggy. He was down uh, a 24-foot uh, open lift shaft that's on uh, an active construction site. And uh, the poor thing was was welping away down there. And I had no idea how we were going to get it out, you know. Any idea? You only heard him Saturday, so you reckon he'd only just fallen down there probably Saturday? Yeah, probably at some stage Saturday, yeah, because I live above it, so I probably w- I would have heard the same noise during the week, you know, so if he, if he was in there, you know. So he's 24 foot down, you can hear him. Can you see him, no? Were you able to see him, or...? Yeah, we could see him. Yeah, was he, he was yeah, he'd, every day. I'd sort of yeah, call him, you know, trying to call him, and he'd look up and he'd start barking at me, you know, and we were like, we were, uh, our hearts dropped, you know, we were trying, couldn't figure out how to get him out, you know, because it's such a large drop, you know. So what happened? Did you contact the emergency services? We did, yeah. We rang the fire brigade and the fire brigade said it wasn't, uh, it wasn't feasible to send the fire engine out to attend the call. So they, they said that they wouldn't be coming out. So it was left to ourselves to uh, try and formulate a plan to get the dog out. So what did you do? Uh, we got a construction bag, uh, a, a ton bag for construction. And there were four of us and we attached cables to each four handles of the construction bag. So we lowered that down into the shaft. And uh, we spent about half an hour, three quarters of an hour, trying to coax Charlie, the dog, into the bag. And eventually he stepped into it. And as soon as he did, all four people pulled their cords in four corners to seal the bag. And once we knew the bag was sealed, we started pulling them up slowly out of the shaft. So it took, him a, it took a little while to encourage him to get into this improvised bag, but he eventually did, and up you take him to the surface. Was he excited or delirious or licking you or jumping up on you or what? <laughs> he was indeed, yeah. He was very, very happy to get out. And it's a, it's a very heartwarming story, you know, because uh, the owner had seen on Facebook that the dog had been found. And the owner was actually in Tesco on her site, our site at the same time. So... The owner actually came down to do his shopping and he went home with his lost dog. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that brilliant? How long was Charlie missing for? Ten days he was missing for, the poor thing. My, oh my, I'm sure uh, the owners, and the owners are Daniel and Jennifer Lynch and their six children. I'm sure they were despairing. They probably thought by, by this weekend he was gone. Yeah, well, Daniel actually said to me that uh, there was a dog, uh, a dead dog found on Bettystown Beach recently, but the dog was unidentifiable, and he had gone down and viewed it, and he had made the assumption that it was their dog, so they were working on the premise that he, the poor dog was dead. Oh, my. Oh, my. And you mentioned uh, Daniel was down doing the shopping in Tesco. I heard uh, the wee dog, uh, Charlie, uh, got a good feed from Tesco before he went home. Oh, he did, of course. Yeah, and there, was a, there was a lot of lovely, very nice, generous people there, you know, offering any help they could. And one of the ladies uh, that was there, Roisin was her name, she's a veterinary nurse. And uh, she gave him a, a quick check over and we gave him some water and he got some ham and some sausages from Tesco as well. And he was there. Uh, as soon as he saw them, he couldn't stop jumping. <laughs> oh, marvellous. What a story this is. Well done to you, uh, Ivor, and the people who helped you and your uh, ingenuity and improvisation in getting the dog up from such a depth down as well. You did a fantastic job. He'll be ever forever in your debt. 
<laughs> this is it, this is it. I might be on the Christmas list. <laughs> I'm sure, I am absolutely sure you will be on the Christmas list. Yeah, well, all's well that ends well. That's the way we'll finish this story. Congratulations to you all. He's famous at this stage, and so are you guys too. Well done to you. Delighted to hear the lovely story today. Ah, thanks very much. Take care of yourself. That's a warm story. (laughs) Ah, it is indeed. It is indeed. Well done, Ivor. Talk to you soon. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Ivor Kenny there with the dog rescue story. And just to clarify, we we did check out about it. You know, if if you're in a situation, didn't we, Louise, like like this ever again? We did. We just asked uh, Meath County Council just for the fire services there to clarify what happens. And confirmed that, unfortunately, this type of incident is not part of the fire services PDA, uh, which is a predetermined attendance. That's what that stands for. Uh, and the uh, caller would have been informed uh, uh, as such by the Regional Control Centre. So this seems it doesn't fall under the remit anymore of yeah. the fire. I, oh, cats I, up trees. Uh, no, I think that only happens in Fireman Sam <laughs> and Peppa Pig now to be honest with you so let's just uh, understand that uh, there are massive calls on the emergency <laughs> services we know that uh, for different matters but uh, it seems not anymore so you'll just have to become so creative like Ivor and his friends there brilliant isn't it look around and saw the bike absolutely yeah, have you any news for me on the Christmas lights I'm coming oh, back yes. to the Christmas Sorry. lights in Drogheda again what uh, happened Love Drogheda put um, just a, a post up on, on their Facebook saying um, the Love Drogheda bid team sincerely regrets the cancellation of the Christmas lighting programme scheduled for last Friday evening on account of the heavy rainfall just prior to the planned start, starting time, our health and safety officer expressed concern about possible shorts and fires at electrical connections when the power was turned on. We then made an effort to reschedule the Christmas light ceremony to this Sunday evening, that was yesterday, uh, at 5pm. We learned it would not be possible to reorganise the various performers to the, um, accommodate the new schedule. And unfortunately, we had taken the decision to cancel this year's Christmas light ceremony for the first time in 20 years. The lights uh, went on automatically on Sunday evening at 5pm um, and we're very sorry to disappoint so many but unfortunately had no control over the weather which turned out so bad. I, I, I understand. How could they reorganise Santa? Sure, he had to get back to the North Pole. That man is just so busy at the moment and he uh, graced Rotter with his presence for, for the switching on of the lights on Friday. He couldn't come back. Look, I'm a great supporter of all things local, Dundalk, Drogheda, Navin, Meath, Loud, you name it. But come on, folks, in Irish climate terms, if you put up Christmas lights and electrical connections out in the weather in Ireland, they must be foolproof to the weather. Sure, in the name of God, in the coldest countries in the world, they have the lights in the wettest countries in the world. Come on, come on. Let's call a spade a spade here. It was a a real mess up, I have to say. It was. Learn from it. Don't let it happen again. Really, come on. They're on now anyway, and that's the main thing. But there you go. Late lunch, LMFM radio this Monday afternoon. Final break of the show, and we come back with our November unsung hero. I've mentioned this before many times, but I love getting post and especially a handwritten letter. And last week, the most beautiful handwritten letter was sent to me. And it came from Balrigan, Kilcurry, Dundalk, County Louth. And the lady who wrote the letter is on the line. Margaret Hughes, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jerry. I have to say, first off, you are a beautiful, beautiful writer. Do you write letters from now and again or was this just a once off? 
Oh, I write them every now and again. <laughs> when um, I'm, not, I'm not used of sending emails, so I prefer to write letters. Well, let me say to you, keep up the great work because you just made my day when I saw the letter and read its contents. You want to nominate somebody as the unsung hero for November. Who is it? It's Anne Wilkinson from 12 O'Donnell Park, Clawhead. And why are you nominating this woman? Well, it's a long story, Jerry. <laughs> and a number of years ago, I met Anne because my brother-in-law was on oxygen and uh, he was waiting for a lung transplant and time was running out and things were looking grim. So uh, a friend of mine told me about Anne and I went over to her house and got the relic of St. Theo. So um, I blessed, we blessed my brother-in-law and we prayed and um, the miracle happened. A few weeks later, he was called for a lung transplant. So, needless to say, we were we were delighted. And he never forgets his donor and their family for giving him that opportunity. But uh, there was numerous occasions that I called an end the relic and I have to say she is the most amazing person and she is so um, she has a great faith and nothing, no matter what day or night you will call her she is always, leave it with me, so I have to nominate and because at that time it was a sort of a life and death situation so we were when you're faced with that situation Jerry. You have nobody to look for, only a higher being. So uh, that's who we went. And uh, to this day, I have to say we're grateful to Anne. And uh, this year, I went on a pilgrimage with Anne to San Giovanni. She has been organising pilgrimages for 37 years. And a number of people that spoke so highly of her and all that she does behind the scenes, confidentially, is unbelievable. I'm so, sitting here uh, listening to you and I can understand exactly why. When you think of your own personal circumstances and what uh, St. Peel did and his relic for you as a family and many others that it has helped, uh, as you outlined in your letter, over the years. So you went to San Giovanni and you really loved it. And this woman has been organising, as you mentioned there, for 37 years and people just love her. I think she's a worthwhile nominee and I just want to tell you that she is our unsung hero for the month of November. Congratulations, Anne Wilkinson. And you know what? We're going to be meeting Anne and yourself, Margaret, shortly because there's a very special uh, dinner planned pre-Christmas. We'll be in touch with you after the show to make the presentation of the awards and we'll have another chat with you around that time again. Is that okay? Well, thank you very much, Jerry. Not at all. 
You've really made my day. <laughs> I'm delighted to make anybody's day is a real pleasure in life and I'm delighted we've made yours. Thank you for the lovely letter and the nomination and again, congratulations to Anne Wilkinson. We'll see you in a couple of weeks' time. Is that okay? Take care, Thank Margaret. You, Jerry. God bless Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye now. Bye-bye. 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 Lovely lady, Margaret Hughes. So it is Anne Wilkinson for the month of November and of course it is our unsung hero in association with Home Instead Senior Care and we're having a big get together on the 10th of December for everybody all coming together to honour all our unsung heroes for the 11 months so far and we have an unsung hero as well for the month of December which we'll tell you about anon. Anyway, that's almost a lot on Late Lunch for this Monday afternoon. Thank you to everybody who's been in touch with us on the show, who entered the competition for the book, who commented. Uh, We really do appreciate your company every day here on LMFM Radio. We're back tomorrow at half past one with another full show for you. Until then, get ready for Eddie. He's up next. See you Tuesday. Take care. Have a lovely Monday evening. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors. The 2020 Dacia sales event is now on at Blackstone Motors, Drogheda, Dundalk and Cavan. Call in to see how shockingly affordable a new Dacia is in the new year. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget check out quince they've got all the good stuff shirts and polos activewear and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.